And they heard the voice of Jehovah God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Jehovah God among the trees of the garden. And Jehovah God said unto the man, Where art thou? What a question. W.H. Griffith Thomas said, that this question was the call of divine justice, which cannot overlook sin. It is the call of divine sorrow, which grieves over the sinner. It is the call of divine love, which offers redemption from sin. When God asked the question, Where art thou today? One of four answers will be given. Every accountable being in this assembly today will answer that question in one of these four ways. Let us think very soberly about where we are. When Jehovah God asked the question, where art thou? Some are going to answer, Lord, I am in sin in the world. And Lord, I'm in sin in the world because I am living in unrighteousness. In 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with men, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, Sounds like reading the morning newspaper, doesn't it? Nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Boys and girls, the word unrighteousness carries with it the negative, un, the root, right. Individuals who are not right in their relationship with Jehovah God because they are violating His will, living in sin in the world. Others are going to answer, Lord, I'm in sin in the world because I'm in rebellion to what you've told me. In 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 4, God said to Saul through Samuel, Go smite the Amalekites. Do not leave anything alive. Utterly destroy. And after that mission, Saul comes out to meet Samuel. And Saul says to Samuel, I have done what Jehovah commanded to be done. In our parlance, Samuel said, Excuse me? What meaneth the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? Oh, Saul said, the people wanted to bring those back as a sacrifice unto Jehovah God. Well, they had a good motive. They were sincere and they were honest in what they wanted to do. And they wanted to sacrifice those spoils unto Jehovah God. And that brings us to probably what some people only know out of 1 Samuel 15. In verses 22 and 23. Samuel says to Saul, as Jehovah directs, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken, that means pay attention, 
than the fat of rams. Now I want you to notice very carefully. For rebellion is, now boys and girls, look at the simile, as witchcraft. And stubbornness is as idolatry and teraphim. Both of those carried the death penalty under the Mosaic law. Now what is Samuel saying to Saul? You have rebelled against what God said. Oh no, no, no. We brought them back as a sacrifice. God doesn't want a sacrifice that has been obtained in violation of His Word. And individuals today who rebel against the Word of God, when God asks the question, where art thou, are going to answer, Lord, I'm in sin in the world. Others are going to answer, Lord, I'm in sin in the world because I'm living a life of disobedience. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul said, using the King James terminology, mortify. We don't use that word very much anymore. That's the word from which we get our word mortician. The American Standard Translation, put to death. That's the meaning of the word. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. He named five of them. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now look very closely. For which things sake cometh the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. I want to be very clear to you today. If you're living a life of disobedience to God, the only thing for which you have to look forward is the wrath of God. The Hebrews writer said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the context there means in judgment for disobedience. Those people were leaving Christianity and trying to go back under Judaism. And when you do that, there is no more a sacrifice for sin because you have rejected, you have rebelled against, you are living in disobedience to the only sacrifice that we have. Others are going to say, Lord, I'm in sin in the world because I'm just not ready. Remember Felix in Acts 24, 25. Go thy way when I have a convenient season. I will call thee unto me. Now if you read the context you'll learn that what Felix really wanted done was he thought Paul's supporters would bribe him to let Paul go. So covetousness was behind Felix. But I want you to notice what he said. When I have a convenient season. Acts 24, 25. I want to say something to you today. Religion, the religion of Christ, is not a religion of convenience. It is a religion of of conviction. I want to tell you something. The devil will make it inconvenient for you to come back tonight. The devil will make it inconvenient for you to be at the service of this gospel meeting. You're going to be stressed and pressed. Life is going to be hectic and intolerant. And it's going to be so easy to say, I'm tired tonight. I'll go tomorrow. Or I'll go some other time, but not now. There's just so much. Listen, the devil is going to make it inconvenient. He's going to make it inconvenient for you to obey the gospel. He doesn't want you to be saved. And he wants you to look for a religion that doesn't ask anything out of you in return. And Ladies and gentlemen, the religion of Christ has never said, come on over and sit on the pews with us. 
The religion of Christ is to the work, to the work. We're servants of God. And servants serve. They don't sit. It's inconvenient. No. Some are going to say, Lord, I'm in sin in the world because in the words of the song and of the King James translation, I'm almost persuaded. Agrippa was there, you remember, in Acts 26, 28. When Paul said, Believest thou the prophets? Now he goes back to Agrippa's understanding of the Old Testament. Do you believe in the Messiah whom the prophets prophesied? Well, Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. Believest thou the prophets? He said, I know thou believest. And then Agrippa said, literally, with but little persuasion, thou wouldest fain make me a Christian. And that comes out in the wording of the King James and in the wording of the song. Almost. Thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And look at, uh, at Paul's response. I would that you were not almost, but altogether the same as I am, except these handcuffs. Paul stood there in bonds and chains. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, he says, but I want you to be a Christian just like I am. But do you remember the refrain of that song? Almost but lost. Lord, I'm in sin in the world. When Jehovah God asks the question, where art thou? Others are going to answer, Lord, I'm in religious error. Lord, I want you to understand I'm religious. I want you to understand that I'm doing things religiously. I claim to be something religious. I have my name on a roll somewhere in some kind of an organization that calls itself a church But Lord, I have never really just taken the time to get my Bible down and find out if what I'm doing is what you've authorized to be done. I've just listened to what people have told me, what my parents said, what my preacher says, and what people in general have said to me. And that's what I've done, and I've done it religiously. But Lord, too late I have now discovered I was religious but in religious era. And they are there Offering vain worship. Remember Matthew 15 verses 8 and 9? But in vain. Now boys and girls, that word vain means empty. In emptiness do they worship me. Teaching as their doctrines the commandments or precepts of men. They can go no higher for their doctrine, for their belief, for their practice than a man. They have to quote some man as their authority. Some church father, some founder or organizer, some writer of some creed. But that's as far as we can go. We can't go to God. And thus my worship is in vain. I want to be very careful here. Have you ever thought about what heaven hears while people worship? If I'm out of the right relationship with God today and not in fellowship with Him, When singing is being done, heaven hears silence. When praying is being done, heaven hears silence. I'm offering up empty worship to God. And many of them are worshiping in vain because they have believed false teachers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Peter changed wording, if you notice very carefully in your Bible. 
Peter said that in the past there were false prophets. That was during the time of the miraculous, both Old and New Testament prophets. But he said in your time there will also be false teachers. Now he changes wording from prophets to teachers. And they are going to privily bring in destructive heresies. You know what that means? They're going to come in the side door. They're not going to walk in in plain sight, get up before you and say, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a false teacher and I'm here to lead you to hell. They're not going to do that. They're going to come in through the side door and privately begin to meet with people. And when they have their hooks in a group of folks, then they're going to take over. And what they're teaching is not what the Bible teaches. But how do you know I'm not one of them? I don't know what your concept of a gospel meeting is. But if your concept is you park yourself on a pew, you put your brain in neutral, and you say to me, James, don't take too much of my time, you're going to be sadly disappointed on judgment. You see, so many people look at a gospel meeting like, we brought this preacher in to work this week. Listen, let me tell you something. My job is to preach what the Bible teaches. Your job is to make sure I did. We're working together. And your job is to study your Bible, to listen intently, to make sure what I'm saying is what's true. If not, we could all be led away by a false teacher. There are a lot of people who teach falseness in a beautiful way that sounds good. I have a good friend of whom I say affectionately, he says nothing well. And people are enamored with how he says what he says, but when you boil it down to what he said, he didn't say anything. You're going to have a belly full of that before November. People who say nothing well. But that doesn't get us anywhere. Is this what the Bible teaches? They are offering vain worship because they joined a church of man. In Matthew 15, 13, Jesus said, Every plant which my heavenly Father planted not shall be rooted up. Listen, I want to be very careful in what I'm about to say. Nobody in our brotherhood appreciates more than I do what the pioneers of the past have done. I stand on their shoulders. And I appreciate so much the new ground they cleared. But I have no interest this morning in being a part of any kind of a restoration heritage church. The Church of Christ did not begin with the American Restoration Movement in the 1800s. It began on the day of Pentecost, the second chapter of the book of Acts, as recorded in your Bible. That's the only church to which I want to be added. Anything else will cause me to offer vain worship. Some are in religious era because they're in a way that seems right. You remember what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 14, 12? There's a way that seemeth right unto a man. And then he used my favorite word, contrast. But... The way thereof are the ways of death. The end thereof are the ways of death. Have you ever done anything and it seemed right while you were doing it and it turned out to be wrong? You ever been there? You ever done that? I grew up in a little southwest Georgia town. I was blessed five years in high school to be a member of Future Farmers of America organization and so happy to be elected state vice president in my senior year. Able to travel all over our state and to other places, speaking and being involved in various activities. 
One of our district meetings was going to be in a middle Georgia town that was a whole lot bigger than where I live. We were going to stay in a, in a hotel. I didn't know what that was. And I was supposed to park in a parking garage. I'd never seen one of those in my life. So I drove up and finally got on Interstate 75. Had all of four lanes. And I prayed all the way from my hometown to there. Lord, help me get there without killing myself or somebody else. And I ascertained that he was saying yes to that prayer because when I arrived, I found the hotel quite easily and somebody had paved a road right into that parking garage. And I thought, my, my. And I turned on that road and the biggest truck Mac has ever built was coming down that road toward me. I'm not fast, but I quickly ascertained that day he's bigger than I am. This road's not big enough for both of us and he's going to win. You know what I'd done? Turn the wrong way down a one-way street. You ever done that? It seemed right. It smelled right. It tasted right. It felt right. Everything about it was right, except it was wrong. Had there been a policeman come up to me and say, Mr. Rogers, didn't you see that era back there? I would have in all honesty said, Sir, I didn't even see the Indian. Everything about that seemed right. You know anybody who is there religiously today? But they've never taken the time to see, is this what God says? You know, Saul was in religious error. But when you read the account of his conversion in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, when he said, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I also did. But then he moves to verse 20 when he said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. When he learned better, he changed. I want to ask you, are you that honest? When you learn better, will you change? Where are you? When God asks the question, where art thou? Some are going to answer, Lord, I'm in unfaithfulness. Lord, I'm a member of the church. In fact, Lord, I can tell you when I was baptized. I can tell you who baptized me. I can tell you how cold the water was when I was baptized. And if we went down to the creek, I can tell you the names of the snakes we ran off so I could be baptized. And Lord, I have been baptized. But spiritually, I'm still standing in the baptistry. Because I haven't moved one step from having been baptized. And so I'm in unfaithfulness because I'm neglecting to do what you told me to do. The Hebrews writer in talking about leaving Christianity and trying to go back under Judaism, in Hebrews 2 verses 1 to 4, asks this question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now just be honest with yourself. How many of you have been neglecting attending the Sunday night services? How many of you have been neglecting being here on Wednesday evening? During a gospel meeting or vacation Bible school, you just neglect, you, you didn't think you were an open rebellion to anything. You thought you were just neglecting to do what you knew you ought to do. But you know how the Bible defines that? Unfaithful. And if you don't believe that's unfaithful, would you please in private this week tell me what you'd have to do that would make you unfaithful? Just neglecting to do what I know I ought to do. Some have forsaken their duty. In Hebrews 10, 25-27, Paul scored in on, as it were, the need in view of the destruction of Jerusalem, which 
they had signs, Matthew 24, to detect in A.D. 70, their great need for the assemblies of exhortation. And so he said, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the custom of some is, but, now look at the contrast, not forsaking, being in the assembly, but exhorting one another. Where would you do that? In the assembly. And so much the more, there's a day out there for which I've given you signs, Jesus says, and when it comes you can recognize it and escape uninjured, which happened in 70 A.D. So much the more when you see that day drawing. You need the assemblies of encouragement. And to forsake that is to hurt you and to make you unfaithful. Some have gone back to sinful pleasure. Do you know any members of the church that live like the world lives? In fact, you ever had anybody in town ask you, is, and they put a name in that blank, a member of your church? And you know they were not asking that in a complimentary way. I'm glad I can point out to folks, number one, I don't have a church. And if you know anything about that man's life or woman's life that's not in accordance with the Bible, I can assure you, God is not pleased. In Galatians 5, 19 to 21, the King James lists 16 sins, the American Standard 15, that are called works of the flesh. Things like fornication and lasciviousness and idolatry and sorcery and enmity and strife, and jealousies, and wraths, and factions, and divisions, and partyings, and envying, and drunkenness, and revelings, and then, and such like. Now you know what that and such like means? It means all their kin folks. These 15 sins and everything related to them. Everything like them. And Paul said to those in Galatia, those who practice these things will not go to heaven. That's talking about a lifestyle there. We'll not see heaven. We need the courage of Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26, who chose rather to suffer ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. The pleasures of sin there would be all of the riches of Egypt. And Moses recognized they won't last. A father was talking to a son. And he said, son, what are your plans for life? And he said, well, Dad, I guess you know I want to finish high school. I want to do a good job in high school. And maybe while I'm in high school, earn a college scholarship. I'd like to do that. Really have good grades. Earn a scholarship. And his father said, son, that's a great goal. What then? And he said, well, Dad, I guess I'll go to college. I'm looking forward to going to college. I want to enjoy that life and get a good degree so I'll be able to, to make a good living and be a faithful Christian, live for the Lord. And his dad said, son, that's a great ambition. That's a great goal. What then? He said, well, probably while I'm in college, I'll meet some girl and I'll probably love her and, and we'll probably get married. He said, well, I hope you find a good one. What then? He said, oh, we'll probably have children, give you and mom grandchildren, and you'll think you've died and gone to grandchild heaven. and You'll just be the happiest people in the world, and we'll be living our lives. And he said, son, that's wonderful. What then? And the boy got really sober, and he said, well, he said, you know, Dad, we all die. So I guess one day, Dad, I'll die. And his daddy said, son, what then? What then? If I have to answer, Lord, 
I'm in unfaithfulness. Because I've let this world give me the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the vainglory of life. 1 John 2, 15-17. And that's all I have left. Some are in unfaithfulness because they're ungodly. 1 Peter 4, 18. There are individuals who are ungodly in their lifestyle, and the question is, where shall they appear? So many people like those in 2 Peter 2, 20-22. And here Peter's talking about young converts who've just obeyed the gospel. And they get entangled with folks who tell them lies and they believe it religiously and they get involved in lasciviousness. And Peter said that they get entangled therein and overcome. He said the last state with them is worse than the first. Where are you? Lord, I'm in unfaithfulness. Now if we had to stop here, this would be a most negative sermon. I'm thankful there's one more answer. When Jehovah God says, where art thou? Some are going to say, Lord, I'm in faithful service to you. You can put names on that in Philadelphia. You can tell me where they sit. You can tell me if their seat is empty, we'd better go check on them because something's wrong. They're in faithful service to God. Like Jesus in Luke 2 and 49, they are in the things of their Father. That's the literal reading there. They're about their Father's business. They're doing what the Lord, their Father, would have them do. They're giving reasonable service I want to tell you, when we read Romans 12, 1 and 2, that Paul is talking about that which is reasonable according to the reason. When God tells us to give our bodies to Him a living sacrifice, that's the reasonable, logical thing to do based on His mercies, which go back up to chapter 11, which are the background for the therefore in chapter 12, verse 1. Based on what God has done, then here's what I ought to do, and that logically follows. That's the service that pertains to reason. They're growing. Don't you love to see people grow? I love it when I'm preaching and I'm dealing with a passage, and that's what a passage somebody's been wrestling with for a while, and we're able finally to bring all of the Bible together on it, and you can see it in their face. Oh, that's what that is. I've been working on that for years. That has to be what that is. It just thrills you to see people grow. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11. Adding all diligence. A lot of times we start with faith. Peter started with diligence. And in your diligence, supply faith. And to your faith, virtue. To virtue, knowledge. Knowledge, self-control. Self-control, patience. Patience, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness, love. And you're doing all that at one time. You're doing those things simultaneously. They're bearing fruit. I want you to listen very carefully to this. I grew up hearing this false statement. The fruit of a Christian is another Christian. The Bible has never taught that. If the fruit of a Christian is another Christian, then that obligates me to make somebody obey the gospel. And I can't do that. My obligation is not to get somebody to obey the gospel. That's not the work of this congregation. It's not the work of Christians. Our obligation is to preach the gospel. Depending on the kind of soil, Luke 8, Matthew 13, will determine whether or not the response is positive or negative. That's not my business. My business is sow the seed. I remember in an elders meeting on one occasion, I suggested we do a mass mail out to everybody in our county. One of our elders worked at the post office. He seemed to have been this kind of fellow that every time he got out of bed, he stepped into a pile of negativity. 
And so he said, we won't do any good, they'll throw them away. I see them throw them away all the time in the post office. I said, everybody in the county will throw them away? Well, well, no, everybody in the county won't throw them away, but most of them will. I see them do it all the time in the post office. I said, sir, what is our business? To give it to them or make them keep it? What is our business? Well, reluctantly, he agreed we could do that. That kind of thinking has held us back for years from doing what the Lord said because that kind of thinking is results thinking. And that's God's business, not mine. It may take the rest of someone's natural life to take something they've learned today and let it grow and mature and develop as other knowledge is added and them come to the conclusion, I need to be a Christian. That's the results. No, no, no. We don't think results-oriented. We think sowing-oriented. That's our job. Listen to what Jesus said. Go ye therefore and make learners. You do that by teaching. Go ye therefore and preach. Repentance and remission of sins shall be preached. Peter stood up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said, Ye men of Israel, hear. Josephus says there were approximately two million people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It's a pitiful pittance out of two million that about 3,000 were added to the church, isn't it? And if some of my brethren had been reality thinking like they do, they would have shut down the gospel in Pentecost. We'd have never preached again. Look at what a pitiful response. 3,000 approximately out of two million. But God was happy with that. And from that 3,000 it built, didn't it? To 5,000. And then to many multitudes. And then to all the world. And somewhere, somebody told you. And you're here because somebody took it seriously and told you. They were in faithful service to God. You see, what we're asking people to do this week, and we're going to look at this in detail tonight, is to become a Christian. Now listen very carefully. Leave your books alone. This may be the most important part of the service. To become a Christian, your Bible teaches that you must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's John chapter 8, verse 24. Except you believe that I am, the word he is in italics, which means there's no corresponding word in the original. I am. That's the name for God in Exodus 6. Except you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Who are you, sir? Isn't that what Paul asked on the road? Who are you, Curie? Who are you, sir? That's our vernacular. Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. What does that mean? Matthew 3.17, he's my beloved son, God said. And in Matthew 17, 5, he added, Listen to him. Hear ye him. I must believe he's God's son. And then if I want to serve him, I'll have to change my mind about living in sin on purpose. The Bible calls that repentance. God commands it of all men everywhere. Acts 17, 30. I must confess with my lips, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 8, 37. I must be baptized in water so the blood of Jesus can wash my sins away. Acts 22, 16. 
the Lord will add me to His church. Acts 2, 47. And then my job is to be faithful. Either until I die or until the point I will die for Him. Revelation 2 and verse 10. They heard the voice of Jehovah God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Jehovah God said unto the man, Where art thou? Where are you? While we stand and encourage.